So <clears throat> if you remember last night when James suggested that you just take a moment to reflect on your motivation, your intention for being here, I just thought I'd share in a simple way, uh, I want to say our motivation, but of course I haven't talked to any of the others, so it's the royal we. Is it not working? Mike five. It's working. You can hear me. Okay. It's okay now. It's one of those nights. Settle in. What was I saying? Oh, our motivation. Anyway, I just would share mine. Is that we really? I'm here not well as best as I can to share and represent the Buddha's teachings as I've come to understand it in my own experience. But not so that you have a good time or a bad time, not so that you get to have a new fantastic experience, not to help you achieve a particular goal or any experience whatsoever. But hopefully that whatever we can do to support your practice, and practice isn't just sitting, it isn't just walking, it's every moment of every day of exploring how our minds work, of supporting you to, I'm sure you know some of it already or you wouldn't be here, coming to understand more deeply, to trust more radically the fact that freedom isn't about changing or getting something, but that freedom and peace is available in our heart and minds when, in any particular moment of consciousness, we, and that's just for use of a better word, recognize reality accurately. Meditation isn't about changing reality. It's not about changing your idea of yourself. It might do that, but that's not going to free you. It's not about setting up the idea that I will... Every day, I'll let go of one thing I'm clinging to. And by the end of a month, I'll be 30%, oh, it's February, 28% more free from clinging than I was before. If we could just think of an idea of what we need to do, how we need to look, what we need to think, if thinking would get us there, we'd be there. And we are there. Because it's not there, it's here. But thinking doesn't help us see that. Oh, I'm getting out there. Okay. (laughs) My deep intention, my motivation, is to support all of us to keep recognizing in any moment things, things as they have come to be in this moment. There's a phrase in Pali, yata bhuta, translated most accurately as things as they have come to be in this moment, meaning they could not be any other way. They've come to be this way in this moment through an intricate and to a complete extent untraceable series of conditions, all interrelated and connected. In this moment, things could not be otherwise because this is how they are. And freedom comes not from changing how this moment is, not from making yata bhuta look different, 
but from in a moment when the consciousness is clear of confusion, of distortion, of seeing and understanding inaccurately and then acting on that and compounding that. When there's clear seeing and wisdom, the heart and mind is free because seeing things how they are frees us from the confusion of clinging, from the distortion of ill will and fear, from the uh, deeply, deeply compelling, but unfortunately completely wrong, idea that I am, I am, and I am somehow the center of the universe. And each of us is the center of our own little universe, somehow acting with intention. And so taking that delusion into our meditation, then we could sit here and meditate very, uh, with a lot of uh, sincerity and a lot of energy and a lot of um, ideas and a lot of technique and a lot of good experiences. But as long as I am doing it in order to get something we're just continuing the pattern. And we can't stop that pattern by deciding to. God knows. So my deepest intention is just in any moment to do what we can to support you to keep rediscovering, because you must know it already or you wouldn't be here, to keep rediscovering that deep trust and faith in radical presence, radical awareness, radical acceptance with awareness, with presence of whatever is arising in this moment. One of the, um, the names of, in, in some of the uh, forms of practice of one of the deeper insights is called yata bhutanyana dasana, which means knowledge and vision of things as they have come to be in this moment, a phenomena as it is in reality, as Analayo describes it. So in a way, to me, that's a huge relief. We're not here to try and create something or make yourselves better or somehow finally get to the fourth jhana. You can write that off your little list of things. You get there, you don't get there, it's over anyway, sometime but knowledge and vision of things as they are. Well, they already are. It's nature. You don't, and in fact can't, create it. We don't have to. Wisdom arises as a natural um, effect of the cause of the steadiness of clear mindfulness. We don't even create wisdom. So take a huge breath and relax. As one of my teachers said, our only job is to take care of awareness. Take care of our awareness. What awareness is noticing? Not up to us. I think James said that last night. We keep trying to make it up to us. This isn't good enough. That should be better. You know, right there, right there is the cause of all our suffering. Well, could be a long night, folks. So that's really what we're here for. 
and all the forms of practice, the techniques that we practice, they're useful. And there's many different ones. And there's, you know, basic mindfulness at the six sense doors. There's cultivating mindfulness by beginning with a particular uh, base experience, a more neutral experience, such as the breath, in order to um, develop a steadiness of attention so that we can actually notice, one, that there is a mind, two, that it's working, three, how it's working. To begin with, even when we've been meditating a while, when we first sit down, or to someone who's never really meditated, you don't really have a clue what it means to watch the mind. I was just sitting in on a lot of interviews with a teacher of mine in uh, Burma, group interviews, and he's talking to all different, all different people from, well, all people who spoke English, but from all over the world. Um, all who had done a lot of meditation before, and each one was different, I don't mean to clump them, but it was really interesting to see how for many people who had done quite some practice, for some people over 20 years, and for some people newer than that, when they come in and talk about being lost in thought, and he'd say, well, could you be aware of that? And they'd say, yes. And he'd say, fine, that's watching the mind. And that was like something they could not, couldn't relate to couldn't accept that watching the mind includes learning to see how the mind works all the time. Not only watching the mind when it's doing what we want it to do. And the rest of the time, you know, trying to cut that out with ill will, that this isn't happening. Watching the mind with interest, not to change it, but just to see how it works. Actually, it's so much more fun than trying to make something else happen. And as I said, through the steadiness of mindfulness, just watching what the mind's doing, moment after moment after moment, wisdom naturally arises. And the stuff, well, I'll get to that later. Um, but anyway, as I say, we're doing all kinds of techniques. Maybe you're doing shamatha practice, loving-kindness practice, just cultivating loving-kindness. Some people may be cultivating a more um, focused attention on the breath or on loving-kindness. All of these very useful techniques, but not an end in themselves. And our habit of mind is so much to make whatever we do an end in itself. I mean, that's just what we know. We do something to get a result. I mean, why else would we do it? It doesn't even make sense otherwise. So when we talk about what we want to cultivate is being fully present with total interest and attention, complete acceptance for whatever happens for no other reason than to be present. It just doesn't really fit our, our learning. But that is what we're cultivating. And the reason we don't, the reason it seems, and it is, let's face it at times, so difficult to recognize yata bhuta, to just be at ease in things as they are and recognize accurately. I know, I make it sound like la, 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 you know, that's all we have to do. And then everyone here has spent a lot of time trying to do that and at times succeeding. And then when it goes away, really thinking, what did I do wrong? And you're here for another two weeks, 28 days, two months, 
to beat your head against the wall of trying to just totally relax into how things already are. I know it's difficult. And the reason, and I've come, at first when I began to hear the Buddhist teachings or read about it, and they talk about the, um, the need to purify the mind, or the torments, the kalesas, greed, hatred, delusion, confusion, as being the, um, the sources of our suffering. I thought, well, it sounds good. I didn't really have an argument. But over the years, I have come so much to absolutely know in my own experience and to be, to have a very strong respect for the power of these habits in the mind, in the heart. The power to arise, I mean, they're just, it's inertia. You know, you know inertia, how a, a body at rest tends to stay at rest. A body in motion tends to stay in motion. It seems to work the same way with qualities, with factors in the mind. So when you're feeling in an open, loving place, and somebody comes into your vision, even if it's someone you don't like that much, but you tend to feel more loving to them. The moment of loving, kusala, wholesome mind state, it's easier for the next moment to be like that, isn't it? When you're generous and you give something to someone and they're so happy on seeing it and then they feel happy and you feel happy and it just keeps rolling on, inertia. Well, I started with the, with the pleasant, with the wholesome, didn't I? It happens to work very, very um, strongly <laughs> with the difficult states of mind, the difficult factors in consciousness with greed, with hatred, with confusion, that when there's confusion in the mind, it clouds how we see things, it clouds our decision-making, and so what we do and what we say is a little more confused and it leads to more confusion, right? When you're angry and you look at the person you're angry with, what tends to happen? Do you feel, oh, yeah, right, I really... Anger goes away. You know, you look at them, that stupid jerk. How could they do that? I shouldn't be angry. I shouldn't be angry, you stupid jerk. Then you look back at them and back and forth, and the whole thing is just, you know, turning into a volcano. It's not you doing that. That's just the nature, the inertia, the momentum of that state of mind. And they're also very subtle. We're so familiar with the worldview moment to moment that is colored by gross or subtle forms of wanting, of ill will or aversion, of confusion, that really, really often we don't even know it's there in the mind. Okay, you may say, speak for yourself. So I'm speaking for myself. Very often I don't recognize it's in the mind, even when I'm looking for it, mind you. But I just want to offer that to you as a very worthwhile exploration during this retreat. And it isn't personal. It's just nature. It's not you having a lot of ill will and therefore there's something wrong with you. That thought's just another movement of the ill will, isn't it? So what we're doing here, really exploring, taking this time to look inward a month, two months, it, it's so important. Not just for our own greater peace and well-being, but for everyone we come in contact with. I think James also said that. And I know uh, we, I teach the three-month course 
uh, at IMS most falls. I think Joseph was saying in his introduction, I have it written down here last, this last year, about how, how privileged we are to have this opportunity. And we are incredibly privileged to be able to be here for this amount of time, to be here in such a, frankly, luxurious situation. I just came out of 10 weeks in Burma. Believe me, this is luxurious. To care, to have the interest. There's many people with opportunity without interest. And to have the peace, the safety, enough food, hot water, enough health. And it doesn't mean you're perfectly healthy, but you have enough health to be here. All these factors, family supports, whatever it is, incredibly privileged. And that doesn't mean it's some esoteric mind game that's only something to do because, you know, you're bored with the rest of your life. Really, of course, I've spent my life with this, so I'm biased. But in my opinion, there's nothing more important we can do for the good of ourselves, for the good of the world. You know, I'm, I'm sure many of you are familiar with that most famous um, couplet in the Dhammapada, one of the teachings of the Buddha. It's really what the Dhammapada opens with, that with, with our mind we make the world that when we speak and act with an impure mind, and impure does mean when the consciousness, the mind, is clouded by greed, by ill will, by confusion, and we don't know it, we don't recognize it, so it colors our perception, it colors our decision-making. When we speak or act in that way, suffering follows us. In the same way, with our mind we make the world, when we speak or act with a pure mind, happiness follows us. I'm sure many of you are aware of that. It's not just uh, some esoteric, subtle thing. It's really, look at this world. Look at this world. And it's habited, I mean, it's a mess, right, in many ways. And there's beautiful things. But it's habited by six billion people. Yeah, more or less like us, inside different external circumstances. This summer, um, I spent some time in Munich, and uh, I had time one, one weekend to go out to Dachau, which I'd never had time to do before. You know, that was one of the um, concentration camps during uh, World War II. And I'd never had time to go there before, and I, somehow it was a very... Okay, this is going to be weird. Um, I want to say uplifting experience. That's not right, but it was grounding. It really... It just made... Somehow it brought me back more clearly than ever to what's, what I understand to be of truth and value in this world. And that was just by seeing how horrible things can get. And I don't want to put it all on Dachau in Germany. Pick your place. But um, the, it's set up as a museum, and it happens to be, uh, you know, has really lovely grounds, and a couple of the buildings are still there. And in one of them, the museum part, they have big, um, you know, kind of uh, poster boards just describing all different aspects of the camp from, from all different sides. And they would, say, be describing something about all the different countries and the different groups of people that were uh, incarcerated in the camp. And so they would have a, a poster describing, say, the Roma but they would always have at least a, a photo of one real person 
and a name of that person. So it made it uh, real. And likewise, if they were talking about the guards or talking about people who worked there or someone who kept the trains running or whatever the different aspects were, they would have you know, a whole story and photos, but they'd always have a picture of some one person and a name and all the different things. And when I reflected on it later, I think that was the, the most, I thought that was brilliant. Because for me, and I was watching people's reactions, you know, of course it's very intense. But people's reactions, it really, um, they were really present with it and really touched. And I think it wasn't just something like, oh, how horrible, you know, and move on to the next thing. And it wasn't like, oh, I can't stand this and running out. It really brought people, all different kinds of people. They were really there. I was watching them as they went through, but also me. And this sense of this is the human condition in its most horrible form. And again, it's not limited to Germany in World War II, you know. But to see that the forces of hatred and fear and greed and denial and confusion, violence, they operate in the mind of normal people. So, so many people were involved on all aspects. There was no way to walk out and say, a few monsters made this happen. Or one group of people made this happen. And even though it's another culture and another generation, there's plenty of examples from this culture and this generation. Think about Guantanamo. And we can say, well, I'm not involved. And maybe I'm not, particularly. But just thinking about how stuff happens and in the mind of ordinary people, not monsters, and just the little decisions that we make, the small choices that we may make. We don't know where any choice is going to lead in the decisions we make in our life. We don't know what's going to happen. The ignorance in terms of not knowing, which is out of our control, I'm sure in the beginning of Hitler's regime, no one could have a clue which way it would go. And you make your decisions based on the best you can. But how much do we not know when our decisions are influenced by fear, influenced by greed, influenced by denial? Well, you know, I'll do the best I can for me and everyone else. I can't take care of that. Whatever it is. How do I know how I would act in such a situation? I really have no clue. I have no clue. I certainly know how I'd like to act, but that's a thought. That's a hope. I don't know unless I'm in that situation. And somehow, they say it wasn't exactly uplifting. That was like, yes, this is why I practice. This is why I spend my life sharing this, just to help people get interested enough to keep looking at our minds and our hearts, to see that freedom from fear is not going to come from the external situation momentarily, but we don't know what's going to change. Freedom from fear and freedom from ill will, freedom from delusion, that's available and only available in the peace of our own heart and mind that recognize accurately. Because when we recognize accurately, clinging just doesn't arise because it doesn't make sense. And when we recognize accurately, fear may arise. We may act from fear. 
but we know what we're doing. That makes a big difference. And sometimes as we know what we're doing, we're able to make another choice. Sometimes we're not. And we notice that we're not, and we meet that with compassion. That's our practice. But if I go into a situation with the idea, I will never act from fear, that's completely disconnected. What's really going on? And so seeing this, this is really to, this is the line that we all, we all face it all the time in our lives. We just don't know when we're going to get in a world-changing situation or when it's just in our own little particular circumstance. There's a book I read years ago by a man named Hassan Bayev, who uh, was a Chechen, Chechen working in Russia as a surgeon during the, the 90s when Russia and Chechnya got into a really, um, really violent and cruel civil war. And uh, of course, I'm not there. I don't know who was the aggressor reading this book, because he's a Chechen. It sounds as though Russia was, and everything I've read says that, but I don't know. But anyway, he came back from Russia to be a surgeon in Chechnya during the war in Krosny. And he, this book is about how he was the only surgeon there for a few years and in this horrific war. And he was treating anyone who would come to the hospital, either side, the Chechen rebels, the Russian soldiers, the high brass, the low people. And so, of course, both sides didn't trust him. And he was uh, attacked by both sides. He actually ended up having to leave the country being quite uh, damaged. He was kidnapped, actually, by Chechen rebels because he was helping Russians and, and quite wounded and had to leave the country for his life, to save his life. He came to Boston. Anyway, one thing he said in the book is, you know, you're in a situation you've never been in before. He said, I was never in a war. I never held a gun. I was never near people who had guns. You don't know how you'll behave. You don't know. His point was he had this oath of being a surgeon to help people, and that's what saved him, that he could always align himself with that oath, that that sense of commitment to goodness was so strong. So I'm hoping, you know, although hope isn't very reliable, but that the depth of all of our continuing commitment to simple awareness, willingness to be present, with our mind, with our heart, with the surroundings, moment to moment to moment, not to get something out of it, but simply because this is life. And only here will we open to the truth. Only here is peace. That that commitment and the natural results of that, magically, seem to be a a greater access to compassion, to... um, a sense of, my mind isn't working too good. I want to say intimacy, but more the sense of being able to exchange oneself for another. What compassion is that you can feel someone else's pain as well as our own because we're not limited by me and the world out there. Natural effect of this wisdom. So my hope is that by our continued, ongoing, moment to moment to moment here, just in little moments, willingness to be present, Willingness to have confidence in awareness rather than in our habits. Willingness to let this moment of life be as it is and be present with it. That strength, that faith, that understanding will show up in the choices we make, 
in our relationships in the way that we choose to live our life. So, yes, we're privileged to be here, but this isn't some esoteric game that only well-to-do people can play. This is like, uh, you know, the heart of life. I was just uh, in Burma for a while, practicing some, and uh, I spent all, all the 10 weeks there in different monasteries. And it's, it's such an interesting country because it's so filled with Buddhist practice, so filled, men and women, lay and ordained, just everywhere you go. There's nunneries popping up and monasteries. I'm not saying everyone in the nunnery and everyone in the monastery is like a being of light, you know. They're people. And besides that, there's great generosity. There's incredible goodness of heart. And there is such a... I want to say evil, but that the government is so uh, harsh, disconnected, uncaring, selfish, cruel, oppressive. And there's no way to live in that country without, in some way or another, having to accommodate that, unless you're willing to go to jail. That's just how that country works. It's really such a place of paradox. So much goodness. And it's not the only country, but it's one of a few that where the Theravada Buddhism has been really held and shared and taught. And it's very, very much alive there. It's wonderful. And at the same time, each particular teacher has his, maybe her, mostly his, own way of teaching. And you go from one meditation center to the other. I have a friend who was a monk there for a few years, about 13 years. And he said, I mean, he was a character, but this is relatively true. He said, you know, he'd spend a year or two at one, and then he'd decide, I don't want to be here anymore. I'm going to another, which is something that foreigners can do much more easily than the Burmese. Okay, I've had it with this side. I'm going over here now. And he said, every time he'd go to a new one, they'd say, oh, you were at that one? Well, everything you learn there is wrong, because this is the way to do it, you know? And it's just subtleties of technique little different things, you know, that to someone in the bigger world would go, come on, get over it. But no, these are, you know, huge holdings and ill will and I'm right and you're wrong. It's the human mind. It's everywhere. Great beauty. And still, what creeps in is our confusion, our sense of self, our wanting, our aversion. These, these um, habits of mind are so insidious so familiar. So it's not to hate them, but a lot of our practice is let's learn how it works. Let's get really interested in it. You don't have to stop it. Just get interested in it. That already changes the equation. Let me uh, give you an example. (laughs) All right. A lot of this isn't going to get out tonight. Um, Last night, when James asked you about your aspiration, what's your aspiration? I'm not going to ask you what it is, but did you think of something? And maybe you didn't, and that's okay, too. I'm just using this as an example. So say, for example, one's aspiration came up as, I'm really here to free my mind from greed and confusion. Or you really get in touch with my deepest commitment in this life is to live a life of compassion, whatever. 
I'm sure whatever your aspiration was, it was an uplifting thought. And it was a thought, right? It's a thought. It might come together with a feeling, some qualities in the consciousness. Now, sometimes people will ask, how is having an aspiration like? I'm here on this retreat to cultivate wisdom. I'm here to cultivate compassion. How is that different from wanting? How is that different from thinking, I want to be more compassionate? And then we say, the freedom the Buddha taught is the heart and mind that's free of clinging. And if I want to be more compassionate, that's clinging. We're back in paradox land, which, of course, the practice uh, always is. And so this is an example, I'm, I hope this makes sense, of how when the kalesas are there, it distorts. So what makes it an aspiration or craving isn't the thought itself. It's not the object of attention, awareness. That thought, I, I want to cultivate more compassion, that's just a thought. In itself, it's just that, a thought. It could be completely empty. I want to cultivate compassion. I wonder what's for lunch. It could have no energy behind it. As an aspiration, it would have come together in a moment of consciousness. Consciousness is just the quality of mind. It's a natural quality we don't, that knows what's happening. It knows hearing or seeing or thinking, tasting, smelling, touch, the six sense doors. Consciousness is simply that knowing that this is happening, right? Consciousness is going on all the time without our interference. It's nothing we do intentionally. And so... In a moment of consciousness, that moment of mind consciousness arises, along with it, you could say in it, but it's just arising and passing, comes together with different mental factors, different qualities of mind. Greed, confusion, hatred, ill will, those are mental factors. Loving kindness is a mental factor. Wisdom is a mental factor. Sati, mindfulness, awareness, is a mental factor. Calm is a mental factor. Faith is a mental factor. You see what I mean? So a thought comes, oh, I wonder what's for lunch. And there's just equanimity. There's no toing or froing about it. I want to cultivate compassion. It could just be equanimity, no connection. As an aspiration, will come together with qualities of faith. It brightens the mind. There comes some energy, some interest, some willingness to do. And you can feel that. So it's like learning to recognize what's going on in the mind, in the mind that's knowing what's happening. So, oh, I really want to cultivate compassion. And you feel there's some energy. The mind is more open. It's brighter. You feel encouraged, right? There's more willingness to do something. You can tell. You don't have to check, is this wholesome or not wholesome? Is this a torment or is this useful? You know, right? You can feel that. It's not just that it feels good. Feeling good isn't really too reliable. But you can feel that it's giving us energy and it's kind of onward leading. Yeah, let me really look at this next moment of fear. You know, you can feel that. The same, if you can't feel it, explore. It's possible to feel. The next moment or the next day, you're sitting and you're feeling very, very sluggish and your back hurts, and the sitting's just been five minutes on, and you know you want to throw something up here at the bell to make it ring, and you think, I'm never going to make it through 26 more days. And you think, cultivate, I want to cultivate more compassion. 
and look at me. Cultivate more compassion? It's hopeless. How can I cultivate anything? You know, and you go off into the whole, there's no way I can cultivate compassion in this rigid, dukkha-filled, sluggish mind. All the years I've been, you know, on and on and on. In that moment, is that functioning as aspiration? Not really, it's not really uh, inspiring you, is it? Inspire. Get bigger. This is like, oh, God, shoot myself, you know. Compassion, never mind. Compassion for myself would be get up, walk out the door, and go home. That would be compassion. And no, it wouldn't be. So it's the same thought. But completely different mental factors in the consciousness. Qualities of uh, ill will, aversion to your physical experience. You feel lousy, you feel tired, your back's hurting. You're not really recognizing it's unpleasant. There's uh, aversion to that. The thought comes up, I want things to be different. I want to cultivate compassion. I'm sitting here with my back hurting. That ill will, the inertia. It gets stronger and stronger. And you think, oh, well, then this isn't really an aspiration. It's just clinging. And clinging to wanting to be compassionate when, in fact, I'm sitting here like a slug with my back hurting. It's just clinging. So what's the use? But it's not the object. It's not the thought that makes it an aspiration or makes it clinging. It's what's happening in the mind that's noticing. That's where freedom and that's where suffering arises, moment to moment. And thank God it's moment to moment, because in the next moment it can be different. We're not stuck with anything. And so you're sitting there, sluggish, and your back hurts, and you're kind of clinging to wanting to be compassionate, and I'm filled with ill will, it's hopeless, and suddenly go, wow. Look at that aversion. Wow, that's really interesting. Look at how aversion functions in the mind. It's even got me hating the idea of compassion. Isn't that interesting? In that moment, you see how the whole thing has shifted? And the shift is not, your back didn't stop hurting. You're not really more compassionate. You still have only five minutes, maybe five minutes and ten seconds into the sitting. But the mind has changed from not recognizing the ill will to mindfulness. Oh, ill will is like this. Aversion is like this. You're interested in it. That's our path. The interest. Let interest do the work. Not thinking, what do I have to do to get to compassion? Just what's happening now. Really being here with what's happening now. That's yata bhuta. Oh, aversion has this effect in the mind. And then you can, you know, it goes back to aversion. You can kind of watch the whole thing, not with self-hatred, but with fascination. Oh, this is how the mind works. This is how it gets caught in aversion. This is how it takes it all personally. And then you go off on how great you are watching it all. And then when you wake up, (laughs) you're in a whole nother movie, a whole nother me, a whole nother self. Maybe we recognize that, maybe we don't. But tomorrow, or even today, when you go to bed, I know James said don't, somebody said, probably James, don't analyze your sitting. That's true, because it doesn't help. It's over. But also, the practice is not just about sitting. All, everything we do is just to help us get in the habit, the interest of just watching how the mind's working. Sitting, walking, eating, peeing, doing your yogi meditation. It doesn't matter what's going on in the mind. 
Notice when there's peace. Notice when there's suffering. When there's suffering, notice what qualities are there. I guarantee you there'll be some kind of craving, some kind of hatred, or some kind of delusion. Delusion, of course, very hard to see. But even when I... It is hard to see, but you can start to see it. One of my teachers says, I don't know if this is helpful, but I find this really interesting. He says, the, the, what's happening in the mind at a particular moment, in the consciousness, determines how we, how we see reality, see how we recognize things. So he says, the, the mind, the consciousness, that's colored by kalesa, by greed, hatred, confusion, and not recognizing it, that seeing through kalesa can only see concept. Concept would be, my back is killing me, this is useless. can only see concept, the thoughts about things. Mind that is pure in a moment, pure meaning just free from being colored by those kalesa, can see things as they actually are, which might be, and there's lots of different levels of this, but as they actually are in this example, it would be, oh, there's the thought, I'm not able to cultivate compassion. I recognize the pain, the unpleasant sensation in my body, the thoughts about this is useless as a thought, the ill will, the aversion as aversion. It's recognizing what's happening rather than believing the whole story that's created as a concept. I can't do this. Of course, there's more levels of that. So that was just a long example of how grossly and subtly greed and confusion and ill will can come in and color. And if, even in that example I just gave, if our mind ever so subtly goes, oh, that second way, when you're saying, oh, this isn't, it's really craving, it really isn't an aspiration, I really can't do it, oh, that's wrong. The first way, when the mind isn't colored, that's right. We're already back in. We're already back in making differentiation. It should be like this, and it shouldn't be like that. And as soon as we're saying, this shouldn't be, that chitta, the consciousness, isn't pure. We can't recognize accurately. As soon as we're saying, this is better than that, we can't recognize accurately. As soon as we recognize, oh, the mind is saying, this is better than that. Oh, that's how it is. Fine. Fine. So we just kind of get, get a respect for how subtly these habits creep in. But also, it's, I find it really um, energizing and um, encouraging that the, the seeing of them is just the other side of the coin. You don't have to get rid of anything. You just kind of shift. That Tai Chi move of Ajahn Sumedho always talks about, oh, Thinking, having, thinking this is better than that feels like this. Being filled with aversion for compassion feels like this. Oh, aversion in the mind. That's all you have to see. The whole story, that whole concept, that can go. Aversion in the mind feels like this. That's all we have to see. It's really not so difficult. What is difficult is trusting. Trusting over and over that it's that simple. Because for me, the thing that slips in the most is that deeply ingrained sense that I should be doing something. That things are a mess in the mind right now. 
I bet today you had a few moments where your mind was not too collected. A little bit of so-called wandering mind. And I imagine, unless you're really a very free being, that once in a while you had a little judgment about that. Even if you say, I know, it's just natural, the mind wanders. Somewhere back there, but I didn't come here for 28 days of the wandering mind, I know better than this. Somewhere back, okay, I came here to do open awareness, but the mind's all over. I can't trust this open awareness junk. I'm back on the breath, and I'm not leaving that sucker until I can stay there for two hours without moving. It just slips in. It's so hard to trust that the steadiness of awareness is the condition that allows wisdom to arise, not our pushing, not our trying to control, not our trying to create. It's hard to trust because, you know, it's all about me. And if I'm not trying to create, and if it's really okay to just sit here with these stupid thoughts going all over the place, falling asleep out of my chair, and then I get up and slam the door and think, ah, how embarrassing, and I'm a meditation teacher. Then I, you know, it's just hard to trust because it keeps coming down to somehow it's all about me, but it's not. It's not. And yata bhuta things as they have come to be in this moment, doesn't mean only, you know, really far out things as they have come to be in this moment. It doesn't mean only great meditative insights as they have come to be in this moment. It's like the truth reveals itself. Wisdom can arise when there's mindfulness, this presence of mind, awareness, of even the silliest things, of the most mundane moments. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah, if some people have some great insights peeing, you know? Like when, when Sally talked about Ananda's mind opening as he lay down to sleep. It's really because he stopped trying. And we're talking on his level. The level of trying is so subtle, you know, that I mean, I look for it and I can't find it. But you feel the tension, you know it's there. So even that subtle level. So we're challenged, really, again and again, sometimes by what happens. A lot of unpleasant, unacceptable, difficult things arise in our practice, in our minds and bodies. Sure, that's the first noble truth. Not only on meditation retreat, but we're just more here, more present, more noticing it. Sure. And a lot of beautiful, pleasant, wonderful things arise in our mind and body on meditation retreats. But how to trust it's not Yata Bhutta is equally present. It's whatever's arising now. So to trust that enough, just the simplicity of present moment awareness, that radical acceptance, that willingness to be here with interest, not with judgment, for whatever. And have the trust that wisdom arises by itself. Our trying to create wisdom is actually the thing that gets in the way, right? Because that's craving, that's wanting. So it's a conundrum. It really is a a paradox. You're here, you're dedicated, you're working really hard. Believe me, I know how hard it is. It goes against all our habits. In in Burma, the wake-up time is 3.30 in the morning. Like People who know me think you get up at 3.30 in the morning, but you just do it. It's just what's happening. 
And then you don't eat. The lunch is at 10.30 in the morning. That's it for the day. It makes for a long afternoon, I want to tell you. And, and there's no Dharma talk. So, you know, about three in the afternoon, I remember the first two weeks. After that, the mind clicks in. The first two weeks, three in the afternoon, I remember walking up and down. I had this one walking spot I loved. I always would get up. I, I just noticed my mind about the second week. It, was, it, was, it wasn't big suffering. I mean, I was really there. It was just kind of subtle stuff. It's like, just something, God, anything, you know? A cat goes by. Wow. <laughs> Look at that cat, how fascinating, you know? Just something to happen, please, instead of walking up and down and up and down and just being with, noticing what the mind's knowing and not doing anything, not even trying to get concentrated, just being present. It's long. It goes against our habits. Just, okay, keep doing it. Now I'm really wanting something to happen, fine, you know? I know what it's like. All of that just to keep rediscovering the fact that when we can fully inhabit with interest, really in a way with love, but without resistance, and with awareness, with wakefulness, totality, this present moment, take care of our awareness, that's our job. And that's only our job. <coughs> Wisdom will do its job. Yata Bhuta, we will see. We do, moment to moment, we do recognize accurately things as they have come to be. And just for a moment recognizing that, there isn't clinging, because clinging doesn't make sense when we see how things are. Constantly changing, not about me, nothing to rely on. Oh yeah, right, what's there to cling to? And that's peaceful. That brings a kind of ease. And then the next moment, the next moment, mind you, the mind is going, yeah, but maybe the juice today will be that kind I like. In four hours, that little cup of juice, maybe, you know, and there's clinging again. Oh, all right, clinging is like this. Clinging is like this. Not, I shouldn't be clinging. I had a moment of freedom, and now I'm clinging. Oh, my God, it's all over. No, clinging is like this. Can we trust that much? And be that simple. That's really what my, my aspiration, my wish for all of us here on this retreat is. I think that's enough. Thanks. After the talks, we like to just sit quietly for a moment, just to let the words settle. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.